To Unfrozen, I am Dan Safaric, and back from the dead is Greg Lindsay. Our guest this week is me. I'm I'm the guest because I missed the last few guests. Because yes, Dan, that's how things are going here in the world of Omicron, particularly for those of us who are parents. I say I, I had to drop off of our let's see two episodes ago. I had to drop off because I was homeschooling my child from the wilds of Massachusetts because uh, of virtual school. And last time around, unfortunately, I had to miss it because I was sick with the with the Rona. Um, but I'm back, as you said, resurrected Lazarus style here to uh, to discuss the latest and greatest trends in architecture. Uh, number one of which I want to bring up is the Winter Olympics. They are they're underway as we tape this. The opening ceremonies are happening now in China. Um, I would say we were just riffing before this. To me, the most amazing thing I thought about with the Winter Olympics is, unlike 2008, there is no iconic images here. I couldn't tell you who the architects are. I could tell you about Herzog and Demeron, and I could tell you about the bird's nest and, and all that. But this time, the architecture has taken a decided backseat, partly because of COVID and, and partly just because of the whole bizarreness of it. And yeah, I mean, as someone who spent several years in China, I'm curious your thoughts now on, like, on how these Beijing games are being perceived. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm reading more about, you know, the, the, the Western media, you know, making sure to bring up just to like poke them every now and then their human rights abuses. The, the discourse has very much changed in the last 14 years. It's very fascinating. Oh, yes. Uh, it's no longer the open arms that we saw in 2008. Um, you know, that was like... Uh, in the sense that, you know, the ping pong diplomacy then led to, you know, Nixon's uh, opening of China and the gradual Deng Xiaoping era um, kind of culminated really in the 2008 Olympics. It was sort of, it was China's arrival on the world stage is certainly in terms of attracting architecture um, from around the world. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, the, a lot of those venues are being repurposed this year. Um, I've seen some discussion on several levels. Um, you know, I think they're projecting, they're, they're trying to split it, split the difference very carefully here, right? Because, you know, uh, there's the, obviously the geopolitical concerns are, are very high right now with not only COVID transmission, but also China's human rights record, which is under extreme scrutiny from uh, the international community, um, which is more or less decided to boycott um, the Olympics, at least not sending any officials, not that they really could have achieved that anyway with all the, you know, COVID restrictions. But. I, I was to say there, the, the, the list of the list of foreign dignitaries who are attending the opening ceremonies is just hilarious because it's basically like it's Prince Rainier of Monaco and other handful of like tiny principalities, uh, you know, and then basically like the most debtor nations to China, like, you know, like the, you know, pre president of Argentina is there because they're looking for bailouts. It's a, Oh, and Vladimir Putin. Putin. Don't forget and, Putin. And Vladimir Putin. I say one thing that hasn't changed obviously is that, you know, again, the Russians are invading their neighbors in 2008. It was Georgia and here, of course, you know, on the border of Ukraine. So, so some things never change, but yeah, of course, but it is, it is interesting when you put it that way, you, know, you mentioned obviously the Beijing games, 2008, you know, the, I, obviously one of the most epochal events of the 21st century so far, if we look back, I think in the very long run, 
9-11, of course, I mean, it triggered many, many horrible things and mass death uh, in various nations. But arguably more important in the long run is going to be the admission of China to the WTO in 2001. And, and, what, and what that did to sort of like sort of the final blow to sort of globalization and inequality in so many nations. And, um, and so, so, of course, the Beijing Games seven years later is the architectural and event manifestation of that. And um, I don't know. It's very, it's very interesting to think through. I'm sure we could graph out basically, sort of, you know, uh, ascendancy of empires, and of course their, you know, magnificent architecture to accompany it. I mean, the Beijing Games of 2008 is probably their equivalent of Crystal Palace in 1851 in London, of course. And um, well, I mean, the American version of that is probably the Columbian Exposition, or maybe the 3940 World's Fair of New York, arguably would be that. Um, with, of course, the 6465 is the sort of sad decline of modernism and echo of that. It, it is sort of, it's just sort of interesting. We could sort of trace that through. And, and yeah, I mean, it is, it is interesting to watch us all clutch pearls, uh, rightfully so. I mean, what, what you know, China is, is doing genocide uh, in, in Xinjiang. I mean, you know, eth, eth, you know from, a, from, a, from a destruction of culture standpoint, it is certainly a form of ethnic cleansing. Um, and, um, but yeah, like, you know, the British empire, uh, you know, other, you know, the United States had the Columbian exposition five years before it began, you know, its own reign of empire, the Spanish American war and, and brutal counterinsurgency in the Philippines. It's sort of, it's sort of interesting, you know, the role of architects as handmaidens to, uh, to the ascendancy of these empires and their role in that, um, <laughs> which I guess is what makes the winter game so interesting, you know, Beijing coming back around 14 years later and due partly to their own zero COVID policy, you know, like it's sort of like. I don't know, it sort of vanished. It'll be interesting. I, I'm going to watch the games tonight uh, here on the time delay with my family. So it'll be curious to see how that spectacle manifests, you know, particularly after the very more modest Tokyo games, reusing venues, et cetera. And I don't know, one, one point here is like, you know, from a, from a, from a spectacle standpoint, I just picture IOC and, and FIFA, like just like white knuckling their way through 2022, be like, if we could just hold on this year through the odiousness of Beijing, and then later at the end of the year of, of the Qatar, you know, World Cup, you know, after that, you get into much more respectable nations. In 2024, you get Paris for the summer games. In 2026, you get, you know, Lake Como for the winter games. And I think that's the US-Canada one for the cup. And then in 2028, you get Los Angeles. Like, it's all smooth sailing once you get through the year of the dictators. So... Yeah, I mean, well, then you have Paris in 2024. Yeah, exactly. Then you get like perfectly respectable Western nations after that. So, yeah, well, <laughs> we'll see. I'm sure they'll screw it up somehow, but um, it's it's the, the prospects are a lot better. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, what's interesting is that um, the few new projects. There's only one project by a Western architecture firm um, that's happening in the Beijing Olympics, which is the speed skating oval by Populous, um, formerly of HOK. Um, and then everything else is being done by, by local architects or is a renovation of an existing, uh, you know, an existing project. So um, that's telling, um, you know, one of, one of the, uh, one of the firms that uh, has done the, the, the ski jump, I guess they're calling it a big air, Shoguang big air um, is actually um, derived from one of the architectural design institutes, um, which are the organizations that are sort of, they're kind of like the local architect of record in China, but they're also quasi state owned and you more or less have to work with them, um, even if you are a, a prestigious international architect. So if you're designing something there, um, you know, you're gonna be working with one of these so-called uh, LDIs, local design institutes. So this, the one that uh, designed the ski jump is, is a uh, called Studio Minus, uh -huh. which is kind of funny. Um, 
And that's an outgrowth of the Tsinghua um, Design Institute, which is affiliated with the university there. I don't really know too much about them, except that these LDIs are in every big city in China, and they, they end up doing a lot of the, the construction documents and the real work. That's interesting. That raises a couple of interesting questions. One, has, has Populous made any statements about their participation in this? You know, I mean, I remember, God, what was it? It was the, the infamous Cool Haas Manifesto, I think, that was in the book Content 2004, where, you know, they claimed that they'd walked away from the World Trade Center reconstruction competition in a huff because they were setting their sights eastward. And then, of course, you know, built CCTV, you know, so REM uh, participating in that, I thought was interesting. I haven't seen any, I'd be curious to know if Populous has said anything at all. I mean, being a sort of fairly corporate firm with no front man, whether they've had to. And, and second, the sort of interesting about like, I mean, curious, like this, uh, this hasn't been more of a moment then for a sort of Chinese architecture, you know, or there's no, uh, the fact that the fact that it's sort of, you know, more buttoned up, it sounds like I'm curious what that means for the evolution of their ongoing architectural labor. Again, Cool Haas, I think it was in great leap forward, famously calculated the, uh, the total investment of Ivy League architecture salaries that were at the time, you know, pumping out office buildings across the Pearl River Delta. So I wonder what the equivalent is today from the finest institutes of China. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I honestly, things have kind of slowed down altogether. Um, I think, you know, we, there's a couple of major pronouncements that have come out um, within the last year, you know, where things are becoming increasingly conservative for a variety of reasons. Um, I mean, I think the, the real under, the real reason is that, you know, the, the debt spending has gotten out of control and Xi Jinping and his administration want to rein, rein that well, in. Well, yeah, no, I mean, ever, ever grand in the shadow that hangs over that. I don't, I don't know if you've been reading some of the press reports of that, not to interrupt, but, um, but I've been seeing some fat, there's some crackdowns from the central government on some of the municipalities that are instituting all sorts of petty fines and things on local businesses to try to secretly make up for the shortfall of land sales that is now basically causing the whole financial model to invert. And the, and the central party was being like, knock that shit off because you will, you will invalidate our rule if you start like basically nickel and diming the populace. So I thought it was really interesting to see some local leaders get disciplined for that. So yeah, the cracks are starting to show finally. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, this is sort of like the economy Olympics. Um, I mean, they've obviously made, you know, huge investments in their existing uh, infrastructure to get people out to the games. I mean, there's a, a new high-speed railway that opened up to get people out to the the, the remote ski jump and the the, the real, uh, uh, you know, the, the remote sites that are uh, built into hillsides and what have you. But, um, you know, that was an investment made years and years ago. And I still think they're pretty big believers in infrastructure investment, but not so much the signature architecture. Uh, no more weird buildings. Of course, we've been hearing that for several years. And um, certainly, you know, lots of caution with, you know, foreign architecture and foreign influences. They definitely want things to have more and more Chinese characteristics, even if it means, you know, inviting in fewer and fewer um, international experts, as we are sometimes called. Um, you know, the, the, the truth is they don't really need the expertise. I mean, they do have, for years and years of building, they have built up their own domestic industry. And this goes across all types of industry, but, but architecture production is, is not an exception to that. I was surprised not to see anything by Mad uh, Ma Yan Song's firm. Yeah, that's kind of the international too. architects who are actually, you know, based in China. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, when they were doing the Lucas Museum, I, I paid a, a well. They went. It was it was the Chicago 
the erstwhile Chicago Lucas Museum. I say so many failed Lucas Museums, you have to delineate there, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I actually was in their Beijing office and they had a substantial orange cat walking around that they had nicknamed George. Very nice. That's a, a very, a, a very, very good pun. I'm glad to see they still have that going for them. But yeah, uh, well, that was said. It's like, uh, like Larry, Larry the Cat at Number Ten Downing Street. I was watching, of course, the various resignations by uh, various boards advisors. So we got that whole backdrop there, and um, you know, Larry <laughs> will be the last one standing because Larry is, as some of you may know, is not in fact the Prime Minister's cat. Larry is an employee of Ten Downing Street. I was very privileged to meet him a few years ago when I got to visit Ten Downing. Um, yeah. Well, that is just wonderful. You know, I think I think cats are going to come out on top. You know, no matter what happens. You know, they haven't they haven't caught COVID. They haven't, you know, had to deal with inflation or unemployment. They're pretty much just still doing their thing. They're they're owning the internet. There you go. Well, I, it'll be interesting the Olympics. So if this is if this is the the COVID austerity games like London forty eight, then it will be interesting to see like what the what the spatial manifestations of like the next you know Olympic games will be or, or these events. Couldn't tell you anything about what you know what what FIFA is doing in, in Qatar. I don't know what the stadiums look like. Um, obviously, uh, you know what's happening with Expo is happening right now in Dubai, and you know uh, beautiful pavilions. Carlo Rotti did the Italian pavilion. There's some interesting architecture happening there. I, Unfortunately, I guess it looks like I won't be able to make it there before it ends. But it is interesting. So, I mean, Paris, I know, for example, is going to be the venue where urban air mobility is supposed to finally make the, you know, the prime time, so to speak. You know, there's multiple corridors being designated for where there will be the equivalent of air taxis, you know, human-sized drones, uh, which is interesting. To you know, the Tokyo Games was supposed to be Japan's coming out party for autonomous vehicles and, and sort of displaying their technology there, but that obviously fizzled with, with the pandemic. And then after Paris, you know, I know when I was in LA this past fall for a commotion, um, you know, Stephanie Wiggins, who's the CEO of Metro now, you know, laying out this grand vision of, of you know, trying to create like the walkable games, you know, a, a Metro, you know, an urban scale here, but trying to do everything as sustainable as possible. And so it's interesting to sort of see like the reflections of, you know, political economies and, and spatial goals uh, in cities, you know, is reflected through these mega events, which of course, like the one upside of doing a mega event is that it allows that brief moment, right, of political consensus and infrastructure spending. Like I'm fairly convinced that's what the only reason cities bid to host these games is because it, it allows you to actually herd the cats for a brief window of time. It really is a, like a coalition of the willing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, all these all these organizations that are always at each other's throats, you know, come together. I mean, even the um, you know the '84 Olympics in in LA, um, some unthinkable things happened. You know, they they changed the traffic flow on Olympic and Pico boulevards. They um, you know came up with a unified um, graphical system. I think that was the uh, Deborah Sessman's firm. Um, you know, not much in the way of public transportation, but um, definitely they they reconfigured some very hardwired, you know, uh, driving habits of Angelinos in favor of you know creating a copacetic event, and it was largely regarded as a success. Um, there are there weren't too many architectural venues that lasted from that. I think they predominant predominantly reused the 1932 uh, Coliseum, but um, yeah, this this time around 28. LA, I, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, they've made a huge, huge investment in trying to build out the um, the metro system, which um, which has been steadily supported by bond issues. I mean, obviously, it hasn't been a perfect execution, but you know, yeah. But, well, Measure M, Measure M is fascinating. I'll, I'll come back to the larger Olympic sweep there in a second. But Measure M is fascinating in LA because there's the, there's an actual Onion headline, which is like you know. 
uh, no, uh, 99% of Angelinos support public transit so that they can drive while you take the train. And Measure M, actually, that is actually true. The surveys show that Angelinos voted to tax themselves to spend $100 billion on transit so that you would take the train so they can drive in peace. So, you know, so it's, it's an interesting, uh, interesting thing there. But but yeah, it is, I mean, the games, so, so two things in the games. I recently learned that the failure of the Montreal games in 76 which bankrupted the city and led to, in many ways, like secessionist movements, the whole I mean, repercussions for 40 years. The, the failure of the Montreal Games in 76 led directly to the success of the 84 Los Angeles Games in terms of its privatization. So also we can sort of see here, like, you know, the, you know, the failure of modernism. I would argue that like the, the day modernism failed was not uh, when they demolished Prude Igo. It was like when the Buckminster Fuller Dome burned in Montreal after Expo 67 and amidst like the mounting failures and cost overruns of the Olympic Games, that led directly to like the neoliberalized 84 Los Angeles Olympics where they made a ton of money off television revenue. So, you know, there, there you go, the Reagan games. But then, you know, then obviously Barcelona 92 being the other famous successful summer games, which, you know, which, uh, which was sort of the capstone on their urban revitalization project, you know, the sort of post-industrial revitalization of their waterfront. And then, yeah, then like those, those two games were used to justify a lot of bad investments. I mean, Sydney sort of escaped on scales in 2000, Athens 2004, like obviously the preview of the financial crisis in the eurozone there and then we've discussed beijing london 2012 the revitalization of the east uh has not you know stratford did not as happen as much as they hoped it would mm, 2016 yeah. rio another epic sort of disaster there which triggering our triggering our whole rethink of the model so i don't know it will be it will be interesting i'm, I'm a fan of the whole provision that like los angeles should just host the games forever you know pick a permanent site and probably make it la it would be i'm sure there's plenty of politicos in la who would support you on that I'm sure there are. Uh, you know, it'd be interesting to sort of make it a per permanent World's Fair kind of venue there. Um, well, in any case, well, moving on. So, I, you know, in addition to, you know, the uh, the Winter Olympics, the other thing on my calendar, Dan, is I am, now that I'm recovered and, and pumped full of antibodies the, the old-fashioned natural way, uh, I'm going back on the road. I'm in, I am in Orlando uh, next week for the International Builder Show. NAHB uh, is moving ahead with its flagship event. I mean, you know, Orlando Convention Center. I, I won't say anything about my hosts, but all of you think about what that's going to be like. Uh, from a potential infection standpoint, we're all going to be vaccinated and masked and as safe as we can be. But there you are. Um, but I'm but I'm very interested in attending because you know uh, obviously like you know the housing bubbles continue to run uninflated in both the United States and Canada, and um, and also I'm very curious. The thing I'm most curious to see uh, on the exhibit floor and popping into sessions is learning more about the rise of single family rentals. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, obviously like inflation ran at seven percent in December. Like you know the Fed is a massive inflation hawk. The markets are tanking because they're all scared that money's going to get expensive also you know meta is, meta is shrinking there in the backdrop um but but yeah you know a big chunk of that inflation rise was rent right rents you know up you know i forget exactly it depends on which measure you're using but like you know running above core inflation uh, i've seen rent growth as high as 18 percent in 2021 and you know and this has you know big investors like our friends at like you know the Black Rocks, the Black Stones, and other uh, you know names uh, combined like that are, are you know investing heavily back into uh, yeah forms of rental housing. You know CBRE estimated you know in one of their reports recently, I think it was their 2020 trends report that like you know that their wildcard scenario for multifamily housing could go from seven trillion dollars as a worldwide asset class to like thirty seven trillion. Wow. Um, based on based on potential overseas growth if it grows into an asset class. So so yeah, that happening globally and then also the rise of single family rental happening stateside, which alarms me, Dan, because 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's a couple of things. One is, you know, the fact that, you know, the United States, of course, uh, prizes homeownership as its route to building wealth. I think we could all question that model. But but rather than pursuing that in a sort of like German context where there's like seven big, you know, landlords and it's all a very regulated system, we're pursuing it in the sense of like, you know, rent to own, like Blackstone's mm -hmm. newest company uh, or, you know, or just, you know, renting forever. Um, you know, the rise of, you know, for example, of six-figure earning households that do not own homes that are now just basically, you know, they're they're targeting these sort of rental homes and of course you know the, the rise of you know of, of people migrating out of you know coastal urban metros into some of these other areas like nashville and others are also fueling this trend because those housing markets got so hot so fast that people couldn't buy and now they're renting there as well so I, i'm curious where this goes because you know from an architectural standpoint this harkens back to our interview with kate you know her talking about you know the fact that like you know, yeah, housing instruction in America is, you know, individual builders for individual preferences. And, you know, there's, of course, various models from Toll Brothers and Lennar and others. But, you know, we're on the cusp of like this whole new model of like mass producing entire neighborhoods, maybe not with mass production techniques, but like, you know, fleet level management of housing, you know, using new technology, using potentially, you know, interiors that were designed for more industrial fittings, you know, because you want the ROI on that rental property to last longer. Um, you know, I, I, I've had these kinds of conversations you know, with these kinds of firms that are like, you no, know, like, you know, housing has be is becoming a commercial asset class. Like that's one of my, that's one of my riffs, right? Like during the pandemic, housing became commercial real estate because it had to absorb working from home and logistics and everything else into it. But now you're seeing investors are actually thinking about it is as this sort of financialized asset class that functions more like CRE. So I don't know. That's, that's something that sits at the top of my mind here about like, what's, what's the post-pandemic future of housing in the States look like? I'm, I'm sort of wondering too, you know, if this is something that's going to be, you know, balled together into a large, a large asset class and, and productized. Is this the point where we start to see things like 3D printing really take off, especially considering what's happening with the continued disruptions in the, uh, you know, the lumber market, um, the traditional uh, approach to building homes. Has wood been, framing, know, as we saw in Venice. Yes. American framing right there, right? The wood framed yeah. house. Yeah. I mean, there's firms like Icon in, um, in Austin that are doing this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you say this, literally, I didn't plan on this, but I got a press release this morning here in my inbox uh, from Cobod 3D, uh, live at World of Concrete, which was in Vegas two weeks ago. Um, yeah, like you're absolutely right. I had, I had not put that together in my head there about the labor shortage because labor prices are back up to where they were in their last spike. Um, but yeah, it will be interesting to see if like that helps make the economics work, you know, in terms of... Uh, 3D printed concrete, which so far seems more like a, a gimmick or a novelty, you know, uh, than than a really applicable technique, but potentially, yeah. Um, but yeah, but that's part of it, just like cracking those housing housing construction costs, and and maybe it makes more sense, you know, if you're gonna you're gonna try to build seven and a half thousand homes at once in a you know turnkey contract, like some of these builders are being offered, I think it's. Puelta, Puelta Homes is, is, you know, got a contract to build that that level of, of, uh, of housing development. Like, yeah, at that point, perhaps some of these mass deployment technologies start to make sense because you're not just doing a single job site. You can bring in an entire fleet of printers and start churning them out. Yeah, bring in the robots. You know, it's the revolution is here. No, absolutely. I mean, I covered that too. It's I've been I've been following that for a while. There's all sorts of really interesting stuff there in, in housing construction tech. Um, you know, either robots assembling bricks or or you know basically spraying concrete. Um, I forget the name of the lab off the top of my head, but ETH Zurich actually is sort of like one of the leading centers or was as of a couple of years ago in this in terms of, yeah, I mean, they've done some great stuff and that really points to the possibilities there of like, you know, fractal, you know, what, what you could do is sort of like, you know, uh, parametric design in terms of like 
beautiful like Rococo, alien Rococo is how I think of it in terms of some of the beautiful printing you can do with concrete to produce complexity that no human artisan can actually be paid to do anymore. Uh, and also some of the really interesting sort of structural shapes you can do even with just rebar, you can get some really interesting concrete forms of printing. So um, I don't know, it could be, there could be a real golden age for that. And, and you know, but even then it takes a while. I mean, we, we saw in Venice uh, the bridge that does, uh, what was it, Zaha Hadid design that they 3D printed? I mean, apparently that took several years to actually make, so. Um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that this hasn't, this hasn't, it hasn't actually turned into a well-oiled machine just yet, but the machines are definitely on their way. And I, I do think that the, the labor crunch is going to push things up farther, faster. No, absolutely. I mean, automation being driven and everything there. So we'll see, we'll see how that pushes, but, but the large, but the larger thing there too, is also just like, you know, it'll be interesting to see like, you know, with, with single family rental and the rise of this too, I don't know, I'd be curious about. You know, what, you know, do we still have starter homes? Like, what is the future of the starter home? Like, you know, does that even exist? Or is that now be become a category that gets captured by some of these rentals? And, you know, like, well, are we thinking about what that means for American household wealth is something that I keep thinking a lot about. Um, again, I'm not totally a fan of the notion that, you know, that, you know, speculating in housing should be an American rite of passage for those who can afford it. But, but you know, but it was the policy. Uh, what happens when that policy changes? Um, and yeah, like the notion of it, you know, the, to me, the larger problem of like, you know, you don't actually solve the homeownership problem by, by single family rentals. You're just basically mean that the housing equity gains gets captured by Steve Schwartzman. Um, I'm not, not sure that's a great policy outcome either for the United States, but, but there right. I mean, there has to be some other way, there has to be some other way for people to build wealth if they're not going to be able to do that. Um, I mean, I'm perfectly content to, to rent to infinity because, you know, I'll never get the capital together probably to buy something, but um, you know, most people probably aren't, and it probably is part of their life plan to sort of build that up, particularly if they're going to have a family and you know someone to pass it down to. Um, so either we need to figure out, you know, some kind of triangulation between, I don't know, universal basic income and and uh, you know, government assistance with building up. Uh, the equivalent of a pension, a 401k, something like that, somewhere in between, if we're not going to channel wealth into our own personal properties. Well, it'll be interesting. There's that. And I mean, the countervailing trend, too, is, of course, uh, the no growing number of cities and even nations that are looking into rent control. I believe, if I recall correctly, I believe Spain just passed far-reaching rent control, uh, which, you know, economists were duly quoted as saying that's a terrible idea. It will be interesting to see how they implement that at scale. But then in the States, I mean, St. Paul and Minneapolis uh, instituting various rent control provisions, which, of course, then caused housing to basically stop in the city, which is a very, another interesting political yeah. dilemma because, you know, those on the left are basically perhaps collect correctly describing this as a capital strike. Like, you know, oh, we can't have the levels of profitability we want, so therefore we're not going to build. But it is certainly a perverse outcome of that, and it will be very interesting uh, to see. That's something we're going to discuss with Kate. I always liked her formulation that, you know, that when it comes to like the yimby-nimby divide, that like you need, you need to build and you need protections, but the order matters in which you do those things. Otherwise, you risk displacement. Uh, but that's like, you know, a, 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 a massage of policy tools that no one's really yet perfected in terms of like, how do you do those increments ex ex finely enough that you don't mess up the entire system? But it is interesting to watch cities turn are, are now turning back to rent control of this because they simply have no other idea how to, how to make this work. So, you know, blunt force instruments are being employed again. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have a terribly strong opinion on, on rent control. I, I generally think that you know, 
I guess I'm enough of a capitalist to think that the market can sort out some of these issues without having that imposed, or I should say, without creating a market distortion. You know, but on the other hand, that doesn't mean that we should have unregulated capital doing whatever it wants. Uh, I mean, that's a very general statement, but when it comes down to these specific um, policy applications, I think it's really, really localized. It might even have to be localized at the level of, of neighborhoods or dare I say blocks, you know, because the demographics and the economic forces that are acting on very small parcels of cities are, you know, not necessarily, um, not necessarily attunable to um, a large scale policy. No, absolutely. Yeah, well, that'll be, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. So yeah, speaking of un unregulated capital, I'm a, a couple of weeks, I'll be in Phoenix speaking to Tiger 21, which is the largest membership organization for people who built businesses, cashed out, and are now planning what to do with their wealth. And so I'm going to be appearing on a real estate real estate session with uh, with my friend Mary Mary Ludgan from Heitman. So she's the chief head of research there. Mary's very big into discussing climate. And this is something that we've discussed in terms of climate migration. So that'll come up. And then, but yes, there'll also be a, a representative from Blackstone there. It'll be very interesting to see how this conversation goes. Of you know, of them discussing where they were literally placed their bets. Those who are in a privileged enough position to uh, to play play roulette with the with the with the housing market. So I'll let you, I'll let you know how that goes, uh, depending depending on what level of NDA they make me sign. Um, so there's that. Uh, other than that, yeah, that's that's basically it. Yeah, I've got a full you know full schedule of uh, of travel to, to sort of trace these out. So you know, I've uh, got talks to real estate groups and some others this uh, this spring. It'll be really interesting to sort of see how the tenor of this conversation goes with everyone talking about interest rates and inflation. And we know, you know, obviously housing traditionally seen as a hedge against inflation, something that goes back decades. Um, the one thing, the one thing I want to I toss out here, and we should probably wrap this up soon, but um, the most remarkable book that I have read in the last few years in terms of like how America got to where it is today is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Adam Smith, not the original economist, but uh, the the uh, nom de guerre of, of Peter Goodman. Uh, yes. At, yes, yeah, there you go. So for, for listeners, Adam Smith was the Michael Lewis of his day. Like Peter, Peter Goodman was a, was a financial journalist. He wrote for New York Magazine and he adopted the Adam Smith moniker, I think, because he had a column in New York Bag. Um, but I've read his books and they're like, they are like the holy trinity of like describing like the, the American economy in the 60s, 70s and early 80s. Um, it was the money game, uh, super money and paper money. And they're really remarkable to read because reading what was then contemporary events as history today, you really start to see the pathways. Um, I will say in his, in his second book, he describes how basically the, the collapse of the New York Penn Railroad was nearly the Lehman Brothers of its moment. Imagine if, imagine if they averted Lehman Brothers, truly. That's what they did in the 70s. And he writes about it. Uh, we're like, you know, New York Fed governors sitting at card tables in their garages all weekend because they can't get away from the phone because they're too terrified to leave. No cell phones. But um, Yeah, you mean the Penn Central. Yeah, sorry, yeah, the Penn, the Penn Central Railroad, yeah, which of course, you know, did collapse and led to Amtrak. But yeah, but the collapse of the Penn Central like nearly, you know, wrecked the American economy. But, um, but he describes in his, in his final book there, uh, really made underscore for me about how OPEC is like, I mean, we were listening earlier about China, the WTO, but OPEC and 73, the, the creation of OPEC and the 73 oil crisis, just how it changed everything, truly everything. I never understood the scope of like how like 
oil literally went up the price like by 10 times and like post-war industrial American prosperity simply became non-viable at that level uh, in any way. And of course that led to, you know, end of the gold standard and neoliberalism and all this sort of stuff. Um, but he got into there and like describing in the, in, in early eighties, California there about how people saw housing even then the beginnings of like Prop 13 and seeing it as a hedge against the inflation that was starting to that was running out of control in sort of the Paul Volcker era. Just really fascinating to see like the entire origins of that and how it's described and just it really underscored for me about like the origins of like this entire financial spatial regime that we now live in that we just think of as a matter of course. Like it was a sort of it was sort of a policy choice, but then it also was sort of forced, their hands were forced by the fact that like suddenly, you know, oil wasn't a dollar a barrel, it was $10 a barrel under OPEC and the, and the entire system kind of collapsed. Uh, all the petrodollars flying out the door and like suddenly, you know, massive foreign currency imbalances. Um, I don't know, just really fascinating. And something I should note, you know, for any architects listening, it's like these are the kinds of things that like, I think we all need to do a better job of understanding because it's like the, the entire financial historical underpinnings of like everything that we're operating in today. So. Uh, yeah, financialization is is really the game here. Um, some some good books have come out on that fairly recently too. Um, and I, by the way, I take any book recommendation from you very seriously. I am currently reading uh, Anthony Townsend's uh, Ghost Road. Ah, best book on autonomy written. I, I'd say Anthony's the only one who's grappled with like the larger spatial ramifications of a world of autonomy versus just like endlessly repeating claims about the tech itself there. So uh, I can't wait to hear your review. Perhaps we could do a joint review in a few upcoming episode. I think that'd be great. It came out during the pandemic. The book was sadly underpublicized because it came out in 2020, but really remarkable stuff. Yeah, no, definitely. So the one you just, just recommended was a three book series by Adam Smith called Super money, paper money, and and uh, the money game was the original one. So the money game is like the frothy '60s. Super money is about you know the slowdown in the '70s, and then uh, paper money is really about like yeah, like sort of like the '80s anti-inflation hedges and sections on you know. I mean, there's actually there's actually a moment where he actually prefigures the the the, the 2008 financial crisis where. <laughs> Just goes to show, like the sort of zombie system we're in. Where I mean, he basically said, like at that point, you'll have revolution if 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 suddenly the spigots turned off and and those gains are no longer assured. But somehow, zombie capitalism staggered on. And um, and and to a point there, you know, I'll be I'm the book I'm most looking forward to reading going forward is Yanis Varoufakis, you know, the former Greek finance minister and economist, mm -hmm. uh, who has a great you know thesis coming out, and he's totally right, which is you know that, that we're living post capitalism now. We're in some sort of techno-feudalism because the two things that define capitalism, profits and markets, have stopped functioning. You know, Markets have been internalized by the big tech platforms. And he pointed out that profits are no longer necessary because there's so much cheap money floating around that really it's just about access to borrowing and, and being propped up by the Fed and the Bank of England. And you know he has this great riff where he points out that like you know when the when the Bank of England reported that the UK economy contracted by twenty percent during the pandemic, the markets went up because he as he interprets it that meant the, the cheap money will keep flowing. And now we're seeing the other side of it: the Fed having the temerity to raise rates is just causing the markets to absolutely freak out. So, so yeah, this kind of financialization you know that, that continues to drive it and, and the distortions uh, are key to key to read. Yeah, and I and I do think that rank and file architects and their their architectural designer reports should be a little bit more attuned to this. I mean, I'm thinking back to my own clash with the uh, you know the 2008 um, rundown, which was you know the there was a firm I was working for that was doing production housing in Arizona, and they would proactively preemptively lay people off when there was a change in interest rates that would negatively affect their clients. Wow. Like, 
you know, Puente Homes and, and Lennar. I mean, I, and, and I, you know, I mean, I, they shouldn't have done that, but I would say it's interesting to see like how those effects ripple through, you know, uh, you know, I, I won't name the company, but, you know, I had a call during the pandemic um, when I, with, with new cities where I was, you know, trying, trying to, you know, encourage them to uh, fund a project I was trying to develop. And, um, you know, I literally, I literally pointed out to them, I'm like, I'm like, hey, congratulations on your latest quarter and your profits in the billions. And as they pointed out to me, like, yeah, well, we just, you know, we laid off 20% of the firm to achieve those earnings for the street, like, you know, like, and and the same person explained to me that the the repercussions uh, of COVID as it goes, through, as it ripples through tax bases and municipal budgets and what it means for public sector clients will take years to digest. You know, this, the person pointed out that like it wasn't in, in the case of financial crisis, it wasn't until 2011 that the full shockwave finally, finally reached their level of projects. So it is, it is interesting to like, you know, for again, for architects and contractors and others to, to you know, keep keep a finger on that pulse and understand where where exactly those ripples are in the cycle. Yeah. And I, and I do hope, you know, referring, I guess, back to our original, you know, um, Olympics centered discussion too, is that, you know, although it's very watered down, I do hope to see that some of this infrastructure investment that we've been talking about for years and years finally comes to, comes into play and it couldn't come a moment too soon. We've got bridges collapsing everywhere and, you know, that, that, um, that stimulus package needs to be a lot more effective than, than ARA was. Fine. It's finally infrastructure week. We'll see what it, kind of infrastructure we get, you know. Uh, I'm still very, I'm still very doubtful, uh, you know, uh, about it. And I would say we could def- definitely, I know a few guests who can get in here and get into the weeds of the infrastructure bill and sort of what it means, you know, because yeah, we all agree that bridges need to be replaced. And I love the whole American trope of like bridges. We got to build bridges, bridges to nowhere, bridges, that, bridges that collapse. The, br- the bridge is really like that I- iconographic infrastructure thing. Um, but, you know, but also, I mean, I was just recently in, in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, speaking to the, the North Carolina Transportation Summit, you know, basically North Carolina DOT. And, you know, as, a, as you know, as I think is, I forget who pointed it out on Twitter, but like, you know, state DOTs are like the chaotic evil of, you know, of American infrastructure investment. We're like, you know, the dead man switch, you know, in terms of just expanding highways through communities of color well right. past any point we should be doing it. And they're still, they're still up to those tricks. So... Not what I recommended they do, but you know we'll see. We'll see if they listen to me in North Carolina. So I doubt it. I'm still thrilled that all these organizations that you know on the face of them sound like patently evil um, are you know listening to you. I mean, like you're you're our last best hope, Greg. Well, it was me and it was it was a uh, uh, my friend Scott Shepard who was you know showing them all these great European planning models, and I just pictured uh, pictured so many people in the audience rolling rolling their eyes at it, but. Um, but yeah, I, I say as a, as a closing note, I ended I ended my presentation at NCDOT with uh, with the metaverse, and I basically, you know, <laughs> going back to our previous episode discussion of this, I warned them like like, hey, tech companies are totally emboldened to just like totally drop entirely new regimes on top of what you're building. Like, have you thought about what's what's your plan for the metaverse? Uh, unfortunately, it seems like you know Facebook just might collapse under its own weight. I mean, con- congratulations to Mark Zuckerberg on the largest single day destruction of wealth in the history of the planet. Um, I mean, that's really, really, really takes some doing there to uh, obliterate $250 billion of market cap. We're living in the Zuckerverse, man. You know, it's it's his Zuckerverse. We're just living in it. Well, it's him. Apparently, like Amazon, if, if uh, I don't know, the markets are not looking so great. But if Amazon has a good day today, I mean, they'll they'll gain $200 billion. It's actually it's actually Bezos world or, you know, whatever the man is, whatever his shares remain there. So, you know, and just just one last uh, observation from a little little news snippet that I caught. Um, I think it was a Bloomberg story, um, bringing us to the Bezos discussion. 
apparently they are going to be dismantling a, a <sighs> yes. railway lift bridge in um, Rotterdam because his super yacht won't fit under it. I, I, again, uh, just to riff off somebody on Twitter, that is Lex Luthor shit right there. Like, you know, totally. next next level. I mean, oh, man. I mean, I mean, yeah. Do, do we do we need further clues at this point? Are people pay, paying attention to like the level of like wealth and power and how we how we've decided to just let them accumulate that? I don't, I don't know. Does anyone else think that a lift bridge that suddenly fails kind of reminds them of a guillotine? Just saying. I mean, yes, you would, not, you would not be the first person to, to make a guillotine riff off of that, but like, yes. But, you know, I would say, I, and, and not to be totally flippant on this, but like, you know, this is why, you know, I've, I've had, the, had the fortune to hang out with like Nick Hanauer, you know, who, who, yeah, who made, I think he's a billionaire and made that fortune selling a company years ago to Amazon. And, um, and yeah, Hanauer is the self-interested billionaire. Like, you know, he's, he's, he's totally in favor of wealth taxes because if not, there will eventually be pitchforks and torches. And, you know. Billionaires should should be uh, offering to do that out of self interest. So let's hope let's hope they listen to him. Let's see if they're as rational as they claim they are. Well, let's take ourselves out of this, uh, this winter <laughs> of our discontent and onwards and upwards into February. It's the month of love. Indeed, indeed, it is. Well, I would say we got some forthcoming guests. We'll get some more folks lined up in here, so you don't just have to listen to us talk for the entire time. But. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go watch the opening ceremonies there, and uh, yeah, and see see who my kids cheer for there. Which which nation will choose to adopt? Uh, what was it? El El Salvador had the amazing uh, uh, uniforms in the Summer Olympics. Although based on their current president and his Bitcoin dreams, I don't think that'll be the my my nation state of choice. But obviously, they're all gonna roll out in backwards ball caps. I don't know. We'll see. Well, yeah, there is that. Well, yeah, McDonald's uniforms. That's what he was sporting most recently. Um, crypto riffs. But anyway, Dan, it's been a pleasure. We'll, we'll leave it there and, and return uh, with more, more bad riffs very soon. Take away.